turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you need a Bible, there should be a black, hard-bound Bible in the pew somewhere around you. And 1 Corinthians 15 is on page 961 of that Bible. If you've been visiting for a while or are brand new and you would be interested in learning more about who we are at Gray Road, what we believe, how we operate, um, our next Discovering Church membership class begins on June 25th. That's two weeks from today in the afternoon. You'll see more details in the bulletin. If you come to the class, it's not obligating yourself to join the church, but if it is your desire to join the church, uh, then you must take the class. But coming to the class means you just want to learn more. And if you are a guest, we are especially delighted that you're with us. Um, uh, not so that you'll meet us so much as that you would join us in a meeting with God. And uh, that is the great privilege, isn't it? Because we have no right to meet with God. We have no right to come to God apart from Jesus Christ. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're nearing the end of our study in 1 Corinthians. We'll finish actually in two weeks. We'll finish on the last Sunday of this month, and next month on July 2nd, we will launch into um, a, a series that will take us up until just before Thanksgiving, Lord willing. Uh, taking kind of like a, a rock skipping along a pond uh, to try to get a handle on the storyline of the Bible, uh, just an overview, a framework. There are many who have come to our congregation. Some of you have come to our congregation maybe because maybe you'd been away from church for quite a while or you are newer to the faith. And one of the things that uh, can be most intimidating is to try to get your mind around how is this book put together. And so what we want to do uh, over those weeks is to give a sense of the storyline of the Bible. We will not tell every story. <laughs> we wouldn't get done for quite some time, would we? Uh, but we just want to give you, we want to hit very important places in the storyline of the Bible so that we can all see the wonder of what God has done in redeeming men and women and boys and girls through Jesus Christ. But we're coming to the end of our study in 1 Corinthians, and in this chapter 15, uh, even if you, uh, you know, only have been the, uh, the, the Christian and Easter only uh, person, uh, Christmas and Easter only person for a while, you'll know that 1 Corinthians 15 is about the resurrection of Jesus. It's about the resurrection of Jesus, and it's about the resurrection of those who believe in Jesus. And really, while you could take the whole chapter as one unit, we're going to look at it both uh, today and, Lord willing, next week. Beginning today, we'll, just, we'll read verses 1 to 34 to see what Paul says here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Spirit of God says through the Apostle Paul. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at His coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when He delivers the kingdom of God the fa- to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet, But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame.
Let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Oh God, these are your words, your truth. We pray that you would plant the seed of your word deep in us this morning. And we pray that you would water it by the work of your spirit and that it may bear fruit in our lives. In what we think, what we believe, what we say, what we do, how we live. Give us ears to hear, O Lord, that Jesus might be exalted. We pray in his name. Amen. I wonder what you think of when you hear the word integration. Now, for some, our minds roll swiftly back about 60 years to the integration of public schools. Integration is the coming together of different peoples or ideas. Typically, uh, the aim there is for the purpose, for some beneficial purpose. Something will be better if it's integrated than if it's not. So the integration of public schools where children of different races would not be segregated but would go to school together. Or maybe your mind is all wrapped up in missions and you think about integration when it comes to missions, when it comes to a a, a family integrating into a new culture, coming into this culture, learning. They they never, uh, uh, never fully maybe let go of all the things that are behind, but they take on they learn the new culture. They take on, they, they, they become part of this new culture, new language, new ways of thinking, new ways of living that are not, that don't violate the Bible, you understand, but they become part of the culture. Or maybe you think of uh, the realm of counseling where uh, integration is the taking of God's Word and man's wisdom and putting them together to try to help one face life's problems. Now, integration, say like something in missions, can be of great benefit, or it cannot be of great benefit, as I believe in counseling, because when we add to God's Word, we inevitably subtract from it, inevitably. Now, that's an important issue and much bigger than this morning. You should take time to think these things through. One place that you might begin is by being part of uh, the biblical counseling classes that we host here. They begin on August 14th, uh, and so there'll be more about that coming up. But in Corinth, integration has breeded big problems, okay? These are genuine Christians who are integrating the world's wisdom and philosophy into their lives. So the world's philosophy on sexuality, for example, has desensitized them to sexual sin so that they are not taking it as seriously as they ought. They are not handling it within the church membership as they ought. The world's view on how to solve interpersonal problems has led them to court, to sue others. The world's wisdom on esteeming teachers has turned preachers into celebrities in Corinth. None of it 
is good. None of it is wise. The integration is at the heart of the problem in Corinth. And it's this kind of integration that Paul deals with in chapter 15. Because if you look in verse 12, what you'll see is that there are some in Corinth who deny the resurrection, of, deny the whole idea of resurrection. Dead men don't get up. That's what they say. Dead men don't rise. But this is actually, seems to me, a kind of integrated thinking. They have integrated Greek philosophy into their Christian theology. Because you see, the Greeks basically say that the body that you have and the body that I have is a prison. And at the point of death, the soul is released from that prison, never to be bound again. So that any talk of an afterlife is only talk of a soul and not a body. Now, you say, that sounds quite strange. Well, I would, I would dare tell you that um, Greek philosophy, when it comes to the ongoing of the soul and the forgetting about the body, lives and breathes today in many a funeral home. Because all that's spoken of is the soul in so many places. The body has been left behind. What matters now, now this is a matter of human imagination and not biblical revelation, is that Aunt Josie is now an angel. Her soul has become an angel. Grandpa Joe will be at your baseball game this Saturday and he'll be cheering you on. She's with us now. Can't you feel it? Apart from the imaginative creativity of such statements, which are not founded on truth, it's all about the soul, isn't it? It's all soul. The integrate, this kind of integration is actually dangerous because the denial of bodily resurrection cuts the heart out of the gospel. It cuts the heart right out of it. It robs Christians of real hope. Now, even if you're not a Christian, my guess is you want real hope. You want to know there's something more than this. You want to know there's something more than this life, more than the misery that you have faced in your own life. But friends, according to the Bible, if anyone's going to have any kind of real hope, do you know what we must do? We must do what Paul wants them to do, which is to hold fast to the doctrine of bodily resurrection. Hold fast to it. Don't let it go. Don't let it slip through your fingers. Don't think it's a sideline issue. This is not a sideline issue. This is a front and center issue. And through these 34 verses, Paul gives us three reasons why we should hold fast to the doctrine of bodily resurrection. The first is because it's true. Because it's true. Now, that seems so basic, doesn't it? You ought to hold fast to things that are true. And the Bible is very interested in truth. Paul only wants you and I to say and believe sound doctrine. We serve a God who cannot lie, who only speaks the truth. We exalt a Savior who says, I am 
the truth. Truth. There's no Christianity without truth. This isn't just some nice idea that we have. You know, what if we all just get together and we just decide that this one teacher, he's really better than them all. And we'll say he died and rose again. Won't that be great? And we'll all go around getting killed for our witness of him. Won't that be great? No. Paul wants us to believe it, not because this is a creative idea, not because it gives us the tingles down the back. He wants us to believe in bodily resurrection because it's true. And the reality is the truth of our bodily resurrection is intimately connected to the truth of Jesus' bodily resurrection. Look at verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So Paul is actually going to begin, before he even gets there, with Jesus' resurrection, with the gospel. He says in verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Now this is a different word than other places where you see the word remind in the New Testament. This actually means I'm going to sit you down and teach you something as if you never knew it before, because you're acting like you never knew it before. This would be like if you show up to the first day of ninth grade, and you go into your English class, and your English teacher has a big uh, 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 visual of the alphabet up on the board. And now she says, the A says, ah. The a, you know, and she does this with you, and she sings through the whole alphabet, and you're looking at her like, this woman has obviously gone to the wrong classroom. This isn't where we learn the alphabet, is it? Or it's like in 1961, Vince Lombardi stands before the Green Bay Packers, these pro athletes who made it to the championship game the year before, and he holds up a football, and he says, gentlemen, this is a football. That's what Paul means by remind. He means you ought to already have all of this under your belt in such a way that we should be on from this. It's like what he says to the, it's like what is written to the Hebrews, right? Many of you should have been teachers by now. We shouldn't have to go back to these elementary things, but we have to. You should be on to meat, but here you are with milk. That's the kind of thing Paul's telling the Corinthians. You have to be reminded. So as it were, he holds up his Bible and he says, Church, this is the gospel. It is true. It is good news. For if it's not true, it's not good news. Let's just stop calling it the gospel if it's not true. But he tells them it's true. He says it was promised by God. Look at verses 3 and 4. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The death of Jesus for us and the resurrection of Jesus fulfill what the Scriptures say. Now, we cannot go through all of the places that we might go to in order to establish this. I will only point you to one chapter. That way you don't have to go flipping around. You just write it down and you can go to it later. And that is Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah chapter 53, we have the prophecy about Jesus dying for our sins. 53 verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Jesus died for us according to the Scriptures. This one written 700 years before Jesus was born. And in the same chapter, just a few verses later, we read this. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Now, you know what the offering for guilt is? His death. What happens after his death? He sees his offspring. His days are prolonged. What is this but a prophecy of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? 700 years before he was born. So Jesus' death and resurrection doesn't come out of nowhere. In fact, when you go along, you read, oh, this is actually God's plan before the foundation of the world. Before he ever said, let there be light, he said, let there be the light of the world. So it was promised, and God kept his promise. It's true. But also, it wasn't just promised by God, it was witnessed by many. Look at verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. I don't know if I saw this before. Have you, have you ever just paused to think how unbalanced this gospel account actually is? Think of how Paul is zipping along, right? Jesus died. He was buried. There's the evidence that he died. Jesus was raised. But he doesn't just say, and he appeared which is the evidence that he was truly raised. What gets the most press in this gospel presentation? The appearances of Jesus. He appeared to these people and to those people, over 500 people. He doesn't just, Paul doesn't want to just mention the resurrection as a matter of a creedal statement. He wants to drive it home. He wants to make sure that these people read this letter and are convinced Jesus Christ is raised from the dead to convince them over and over and over and over again. Over 500 people saw him, including the apostles. And Paul says, even me. And I was a nobody. I was persecuting the church and I was destined for wrath, but, but grace broke through. Grace to see Jesus and grace to serve Jesus. That's what verses 9 and 10 are about. He's essentially saying, look, here's how, here's how it went, Corinthians. 500 people stand in a single file line, and each one of them say the exact same three words to you. I saw him. Next one. I saw him. Next one. I saw him. We don't have time for me to do that 500 times. But you could imagine... The impact of that. I want you to imagine a courtroom, all right, where 500 witnesses are brought to the stand one at a time, and they all say they saw the defendant break a window with a brick and rob the store. Okay? 
The defendant broke the window with a brick and robbed the store, and 500 times the exact same story is told. And at the end, the judge just says, I don't really believe bricks can break windows. That's the kind of thing that's happening in Corinth with these people who say there's no resurrection of the dead. That's exactly what was happening. So Paul recites the gospel and he lays out the evidence and he writes of the resurrection and then he writes of the appearances and he puts them in all caps and bold letters and italics and then he pulls out his highlighter and highlights the whole section. He is risen. He is risen indeed. It's true. And this matters, friends. It matters that this is true. You see, a person doesn't become a Christian simply by believing that Jesus died and rose again. You say, now wait a second, who is this? Where has Toby gone? He says that kind of thing every single week. No, 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 but just listen. A person is not saved simply by believing that Jesus died and rose again. A person is saved because Jesus Christ actually died and actually rose again, and he believes it. There's a huge difference between those two. People believe all manner of things today. It doesn't mean it impacts anything one jot. What matters is if it's true, if you walk to the medicine cabinet because you've got a splitting headache from listening to me preach this morning, so you go home and you go to the medicine cabinet and you open it up and you want to take some aspirin, please give me some aspirin, and you take rat poison, it doesn't matter that you believed you were taking aspirin. Your faith doesn't matter at all. It is not merely faith that saves, friends. It is the one in whom you have faith. That's what saves. And so Paul drives this home. It's true. You know, it's interesting that when people, sometimes when we share the gospel with people, they have all manner of questions. And one of the questions that they might have is, what, what do you think Jesus would say about this thing in my life? What do you think Jesus would say about this relationship? What do you think Jesus would say about that relationship? What would you think Jesus would say about me living with my girlfriend? What, what do you think Jesus uh, would say about this decision I made? What, what do you think Jesus would say about my same-sex attraction? What, what do you think Jesus would say as I'm considering transitioning from one gender to another? What do you think Jesus would say? Well, let me tell you this. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, who cares what Jesus says about it? It's no different than you asking just a guy in the grocery store, what do you think about it? If he is just another teacher, just another martyr, just another so-called political revolutionary, you know, just, just some other historical figure. You don't care what Winston Churchill thinks about your relationship, do you? You don't care what Abraham Lincoln thinks about your relationship. I think it's actually a God-given 
gift of common grace that people care so much about what Jesus would think about their whatever it is. Because it means that in some instinctive way they know something is different about Jesus. But friend, if he is decomposed, it doesn't matter what he thought. You can just find a different opinion. But if this is true, if Jesus Christ truly died and truly rose from the dead, then you have to come to grips with everything He said, including there is nothing that's going to pass away of all of the Word of God. If you're going to wrestle with what Jesus said, Jesus said you've got to wrestle with everything the Bible says. If Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, if that is true, if he's, if he's decomposed, it doesn't matter what he thinks. If he's alive, his opinion is the only one that matters. The only one. You'll always be able to find people who will affirm whatever choice that you are making in life because they equate such things with love. Jesus loves us more than anyone else could ever love us. But he only affirms what is true. Hold to the bodily resurrection, friends, because it's true. Hold fast to the bodily resurrection, secondly, because it's essential. Now, the fact that it's essential flows right out of the fact that it's true, doesn't it? If it's not true, it's not essential. But it is. And if you listen carefully, I think we can hear Paul's tone change in verse 12. He closes verse 11 with, this is what we've preached, this is what you've believed. And then, verse 12, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? It boggles his mind that anyone would say they believe in a risen Savior but don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. This just doesn't go together. Bodily resurrection is essential. It's crucial. It's vital. And he actually shows us how essential it is by showing us what's lost without it. So without the resurrection... There's no substance to Christian faith. That's what he talks about in verses 14 to 19. Look in particular at verse 14 and 17. Verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Now, uh, if you and I were writing in the Greek language, one of the ways that we would, could emphasize a word is to put it right up front in a phrase or in a sentence. And these words of emptiness come first in all these phrases. So he says in verse 14, If Christ has not been raised, vain is our preaching. Vain is your faith. Verse 17, futile is your faith. It doesn't hold 
water. It won't stand the test of time. Without resurrection, faith is a fairy tale. Preaching is a fool's errand. And actually worse than that, verse 15 says, we who preach to you are only lying to you. But you know, there's actually something worse than being lied to by a preacher. I don't take any great comfort in that, but there's something that's worse, and that's at the end of verse 17. He says, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, where are you now? You're still in your sins. Still in your sins. That's worse than being lied to. You're still in your sins. To be in your sins means to be spiritually dead so that when this life is over, the real death actually begins. That's what verse 18 says. Those who have already fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Perished is just Bible language for eternal judgment. If, if you grew up in church, you know that because of one of the first verses you ever memorized. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not what? Perish. But have what? Eternal life. David Garland says, resurrection means endless hope, but no resurrection means a hopeless end. Without the resurrection, Paul says, Jesus isn't raised, our faith is empty, we believe lies, you're stuck in your sin, we're all set for condemnation, and the conclusion is, verse 19, we are of all people most to be pitied. Christians are the most pitiful, deceived, worthless lot on the planet if Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead. And those who think that Christians are the most worthless, deceived, pitiful people on the planet are those who do not believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. So they just affirm what Paul already says here. If it were true, that would be true. Without the resurrection, there's no substance to Christian faith. And without the resurrection, there's no reason for Christian living. There's no reason for Christian living. That's down in verses uh, 29 to 32. Now, do you, know the, do, you, do you know the phrase, eat the frog? Do you know the phrase, eat the frog? Some of you will, some of you won't. Mark Twain once wrote, eat a live frog first thing in the morning, and nothing worse will happen to you the rest of the day. <laughs> but... Eat the frog has basically become an idiom for do the hard thing first. So that's what we're going to do. Because most of you are asking the very question that Paul asks in verse 29. What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Now, he doesn't actually mean what does it mean. He means what use is it. But what does it mean being baptized on behalf of the dead. And maybe you've waited all this week to finally settle that issue. You came here in great hopes that I'm going to have the key insight that's going to settle it for you. Well, get used to disappointment, all right? So there are actually over 40 interpretations of what it means to be baptized on behalf of the dead. So some say, well, maybe it's a, maybe it's a metaphor for martyrdom. Uh, others say maybe it's a baptism in the hopes of being reunited with lost loved ones. Uh, the most common one is that, that maybe it's, it's, a, it's a baptism for those who came to Christ but died before they could be baptized. So they're baptized on behalf of the dead. 
Well, uh, we, we honestly just don't know. Paul doesn't tell us. But what does Paul tell us? Now, when you are reading your Bible, this is humongous, okay? When you are reading and you come across something like this and you're like, I don't even know what that means. And you go to a few books and like, they don't really know what it means. I mean, this guy says 40 things. This guy lists seven or eight. I, I, oh, I, I, what am I supposed to do with this? I got to know what baptism on behalf of the dead means. Well, actually, Paul doesn't say you need to know what baptism on behalf of the dead means. What he needs you to know is it's useless. Anything done for some kind of benefit for those who have died is useless if Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead. Why? Because they've perished. They've already begun what is eternal judgment. If somebody's rolling off a cliff and nothing's stopping them, and you give them a little bag of candy to enjoy along the way, what good is that benefit with the impending cliff? None. This religious ritual, whatever it is, is of no use if Jesus isn't raised from the dead. And then on to what's clearer. Look at verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If the, listen, brothers and sisters, if death is the end, if that is it, why would we partner with a couple that is going to the Middle East to plant churches? Why would they put their lives in danger for something that is a fairy tale and is useless in the long run? Why would anyone risk anything if Jesus is not raised from the dead? There has been a great swell since the pandemic in concern for safety. I just drove by an elementary school recently. It did not say, have a great summer. Read books this summer. Have fun this summer. You know what it said? Have a safe summer. I'm not sure I had one single safe summer in my entire childhood. <laughs> I, go into, I went into a gas station this week because they have liquid gold there. It, it, Coke Zero. So I go in and I, and, I, and I get the liquid gold and I go to the counter and as I walk away, do you know what the lady behind the counter says to me? She doesn't tell me to have a good day. She says, be safe. The only way that orienting your whole life and your whole existence around safety is if Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead. Should we be safe? Yes. Should we seek to be safe? Sure. Should we be careful about things? Sure. I mean, it happens in the New Testament. But friends, when it comes to serving the Lord Jesus, when it comes to advancing His kingdom, it is all worthless if He is not raised from the dead. But if He is raised from the dead, every risk you will ever take, every stand you take that puts a target on your back is worth it. Every one of them. 
Oh, but I might get hurt. It's worth it. Oh, but I might get sick. It's worth it. Oh, but I might die. It's worth it. Oh, but I might lose my job. It's worth it. Oh, but I might get cut out of my family. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. But it's worthless if Jesus is not raised from the dead. Do you see what he's saying? He said, look, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, let's all make our bucket lists. And let's exert every amount of time and energy and money to check off all the things on our list. Let's see the world. Let's spend on ourselves. Let's get the house we want, the car we want. There's no reason to give sacrificially. There's no reason to teach the Bible. There's not even a reason to read the Bible. There's no reason to share your faith. There's no reason for moral concern for your neighbor. Eat drink tomorrow we die he's quoting isaiah 22 in isaiah 22 judgment is coming to the people of god it's coming but rather than see it as the reason they ought to repent they see it as the reason they ought to party because if death is inevitable we may as well live it up while we can And friend, if there's no resurrection from the dead, if death is it, and you're still in your sins and you're going to perish anyway and it's lights out, just live for today. Focus all your attention on whatever it means to make this world a better place for other people. But don't have an eye to anything that will actually cost you anything. You see, what Paul does in these two paragraphs is to tell them truth has consequences. The bodily resurrection is not just some neato matter for, as a topic of debate over coffee. It is not something to just take or leave. Without resurrection, there's no reason to believe in Jesus. There's no reason to live for Jesus. Without resurrection, Jesus is just another teacher, another moral example, another martyr. He is no one to worship, no one to obey, no one to follow, no one to risk your life for. But, verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised. So faith in Jesus matters. And dear friend, you have every reason to live for Him. Every reason. Every reason to risk for Him. Everything, every reason to lose your life so that you can find it. In him. Because he has in fact been raised from the dead. It is essential. Essential for our faith. Essential for our living. So hold fast to the bodily resurrection because it's true. Hold fast to the bodily resurrection because it's essential. And hold fast to the bodily resurrection because it's glorious. It's glorious. That's in the paragraph that we just skipped. This true and essential doctrine leads to glory. It leads to the glory of our resurrection. Look at verse 20. Christ has been raised from the dead, 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits may be new terminology to you. Uh, it's in the Old Testament. It's the first portion of a harvest from the field. And if there is a first portion of the harvest, that means there's more coming. There's the fullness of the harvest that's coming. Jesus rose from the dead, Paul says, and so will we. Verse 21, as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Now, this is not universalism. Paul is saying that all who are in Adam share Adam's guilt and share the sentence of death. All who are in Christ share Christ's righteousness and share in His life. And this resurrection is future. Verse 23 says it is at His coming. At His coming. You know, the word, the word cemetery actually just means a sleeping place. That's what it means. Many people call it a final resting place, but it's not a final resting place. It's a sleeping place. And for the Christian, for the one who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is all it is. It is a place where the body takes a nap. Until... The trumpet awakens us. And on the last day, Christ will raise these bodies and glorify them and fill the earth with, fill the new earth with all who trusted in Him forever. We just sang it, O glorious day. the glory of our resurrection, but also the glory of God's exaltation. Now, I'm going to read verses 24 to 28 again, but I'm going to do something. I'm going to, there's a bunch of he's and him's in 24 to 28, and I'm going to read it in the way that I understand who each he and him refers to, okay? 24. Then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and, and power. For Christ must reign until God has put, God the Father, I mean, has put all Christ's enemies under Christ's feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that God the Father is accepted who put all things in subjection under Christ. When all things are subjected to Christ, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to God the Father who put all things in subjection under Christ, that God may be all in all. So at the end of the end, every power, every ruler, every philosophy, every worldview, every ideology that has set itself up against God and against Christ is put down. And he says the last enemy that will be conquered is death itself. What a day that will be. I remember a number of years ago, uh, uh, I was... Uh, I was introduced to a video game that my sons were playing. It was The Legend of Zelda something, all right? And so I decided I wanted to beat it. So I did over several weeks, 
and hours that I will never get back in my entire life. I, I, I worked my way through various enemies of different levels, and I would win some and lose some, and then I finally got to the last one, and I beat him. And I'm a little ashamed to tell you I felt a sense of accomplishment in having beaten that enemy. But then a couple of years later, do you realize what I, you know what I realized? I could do it all over again. And so I did. But when this day comes, when the last enemy is defeated, there'll never be a need to do it all over again. It will be, as we often sing, death is dead, love has won, Christ has conquered. And with death buried in its own grave, its eternal grave, the kingdom of the world will be gathered and consolidated under King Jesus, and He will shine as the great King over all. And then Paul says there's one more step. Jesus will deliver this kingdom to His Father. And with everything in subjection under Jesus' feet, and every enemy under His feet, Jesus will subject Himself to the Father, not because He is less than God. He has always been, He is, and He always will be fully and truly God. He is as much God as God the Father is God. And yet He'll subject Himself to the Father because He was sent by the Father to do the Father's will. And so you see, when He subjects Himself and He delivers this kingdom, it will be like the exclamation point at the end of the sentence that Jesus uttered on the cross. It is finished. The kingdom bought by Jesus' blood and built by Jesus' Spirit and through Jesus' servants will ring with the glory of God through a new universe, new heavens and a new earth forever. What he says here is an echo of what he says in Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What is that? All things in subjection under his feet. And then the last phrase, to the glory of God the Father, that God may be all in all. And with all of this ringing, just sitting, hanging in the air, Paul finishes with these, this moral imperative. You'd think everybody's just going to walk away thinking, this is great. But this is what Paul says, verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Don't, enter, don't entertain this integration of Greek philosophy with Christian theology. Don't spend time with those who promote it. Friends, those who deny a doctrine as true and as essential and as glorious as bodily resurrection are deceptive and shameful. And the companion of those kind of fools will suffer harm. 
So if you're listening to them, walking the same path of ignorance and immorality that they are, getting drunk, as it were, on their false doctrine, wake up. What you're doing is shameful. And instead, listen to me. Sit here while I teach you something that you should already know by now. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas. Then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. That's the gospel you received. That's the only way to stand right before God. That's the only gospel that will save you. Hold fast to it. Never let it go. Let's pray together. Oh God, how we thank you for the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his death for our sins and for His resurrection. We thank You that it is true. We, hope, we pray that You will help us to believe that it is essential and give us hope in remembering it is glorious. Father, we recognize that if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, everything falls apart. But because He has been raised from the dead, it all holds together. And for that we give You thanks and praise. Help us to not integrate worldly wisdom about the resurrection or anything else for that matter. Help us to not set it up as equally authoritative or hope-giving or helpful. Help us rather to hold fast to what you've said, including this great doctrine of bodily resurrection. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.